Well, thank you so much. It is a tremendous honor to, uh, to be here with you, to receive this award. Um, don't believe half the good things that were said. My family's here, they'll tell you the true story. Um, but I will say thank you very much to the entire Tyndale community, not just for the honor, but through the years, no institution has built into my life and my ministry more than this one. And, uh, and although we live some distance away, you're very close to our hearts and in our prayers, and, uh, and we're with you and supporting you any way that we possibly can. Thank you for the good work you've done. Thank you. And you've done it for 120 years. That's old. I mean, that, that's really old. Um, I, I, my family, as was mentioned, uh, the connection goes back not 120 years, but back a ways. My dad attended TBC. So he told me stories about it. And, uh, and when I graduated from Sir John A. MacDonald High School down the road, uh, then uh, it was here that I came for my, start my Bachelor of Theology degree, way back in 1977, second year on the new campus. Any of you remember the, uh, the road around the back that wasn't paved for like 25 years? You know, wasn't that fun in the spring? Uh, that, was, uh, that was, but I remember coming on campus, riding my bike along Cummer Avenue and going to class every single day. It was, uh, um, that was a long time ago. Things change, don't they, for some of us, when you look back that far? Not everything works the same or as well as it used to work back in the day. Our eyes don't work quite as well. Actually, mine are fine. It's just that my arms sometimes get too short. And, and they're fine. I just need better light. It's just not my eyes. It's the light that, uh, that needs to be changed. And, you know, I used to be able to, uh, to run faster, and I remember myself being a better hockey player than I am now, although we may find out who's the better hockey player after, you know, when we play our game. Um, and the memory goes. You're going to probably discover that already. Hi, yes, I remember you. <laughs> to check the name tag, because you don't really remember. And afterwards, you're driving home saying to your spouse, how did I know them again? The memory, the memory kind of fades. It fades with people. It fades with organizations. You know, the older an organization grows, the, the worse its memory is about where it came from. That's true with schools. When I was, when I left Newmarket and we moved down to Gordon-Conwell Seminary, our dean at the time decided one year to, to take us as faculty on a road trip. It was a marvelous idea. We got two big buses. And we did a historical tour through various spots in New England. Wonderful. So we saw where Jonathan Edwards preached his famous sermons, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Uh, George Whitfield, where he pastored and where he died, and his bones are really un underneath the pulpit. Um, but we also visited a number of schools. And one of the things we discovered about the schools that we visited is that they'd all started as evangelical institutions, and they had forgotten the roots. One school we went to, I'll never forget, it was located on the grounds of the summer ministry of D.L. Moody. It was there where he had his summer revivals, and he had a home there where he did a lot of his writing, and, 
and they didn't want anything to do with their past. His home was shut and ignored, not preserved in any way. The school itself knew nothing about him. The only tie back to D.L. Moody was that once a year they had a dance that they called Dwight Night. <laughs> D.L. Moody, D.L. Moody would be sad. All across America, and I think across Canada as well, there are institutions, schools, that started with a vibrant passion for Jesus Christ and a profound commitment to the Word of God, but have lost their way. As they got older, their memories, memories faded of why they had started, where they began. So today we start on a new journey, 120 years old and just beginning. Just beginning in a new campus, a new opportunity, a whole new dimension of ministry. How can we be sure that we do not forget? How can we be sure that we are convinced that this is what God has called us to do and from this we will not change? How can we remember? I think we will be well served to hear what Jesus would say to us. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me in the New Testament to the Gospel of Matthew, to the Sermon on the Mount, to Matthew chapter 5. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is speaking to the crowds. In Matthew chapter 5, he saw the crowds, and in verse 1 we read, he went up to the mountainside and sat down, and his disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. This is what he began to teach his disciples. This, my friend, is discipleship. This is what he wants us to be. And as a Christian evangelical institution, this is who we want to produce, is it not? Our job is not diplomas. Our job is not education. Our job is disciple-making. And what is it that God wants us to make? What kind of disciples is he looking for? Well, look with me in the text. He begins by saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be heard. If you're going to summarize these eight attributes, if you're going to lump them all together under one category, I would say when Jesus looks at the disciples, he says, blessed are those, and that phrase means those who are approved of by God. Those who are approved of by God, what are they like? Those who are approved of by God are people of profound humility. Profound humility. Notice the text. Notice that he said, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, in their soul. When they estimate who they are in comparison with God, they recognize, Jesus says, that they are poor. That word is actually a very strong word. We don't see that in the English. But the Greeks had a number of different words they would use to describe poverty. <laughs> those of us 
Many of us will consider ourselves poor because uh, the month is a little bit longer than our paycheck. <laughs> Get that, consider ourselves poor, but that's not the word that's used here. There's a word used, uh, Jesus used when he sees the poor woman who just has a couple of mite to, to give in the offering. She was poor, that's all she had, it was just a couple of copper pennies. That's poor, but this word is stronger. This is talking about a kind of poverty that I have never witnessed in North America. I've seen poverty, but not this kind of poverty. Not the kind of poverty that Jesus is speaking of. The kind of poverty that he's speaking of is a kind where someone has absolutely nothing and no hope of ever having anything. It's the kind of poverty that I saw for the first time a couple of years ago when I was speaking in southern India. The poverty was awful. There were those who were poor who had nothing but tin shacks, who had kids stacked in bunk beds that looked like they were racks on ships at sea. There was, they had almost nothing. But then there were the poor who didn't even have that. That's the level of poverty that Jesus is talking about. The kind who went to the trash heap that the poor go through the stuff that the poor had thrown away and would take out of that trash something, anything that they could find in order to somehow live on. They were so poor, they had nothing and no hope of any future. And Jesus says, blessed are those who recognize that that is the state of their soul. That if we don't have his righteousness, we have none. That our righteousness is nothing more than what we would take from a trash heap. That's why we mourn. Blessed are those who mourn. We recognize the poverty of our soul to such an extent that we weep when we see ourselves. We weep like the tax collector when he was in the temple. And he beat his breast knowing how deep a sinner he was. It's like Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6. When he catches a glimpse of God and he cries out, Woe is me, I am undone, for I have a dirty mouth, and I live among people who have dirty mouths. It's the kind of thing that is found in the words of the Apostle Paul, when this man, one of the greatest, godliest men we know of, who wrote inspired and inspiring literature, planted churches all over the known world, at the end of his life said, I am the chief of sinners. I am, not I was, I am the chief of sinners. That's the character God wants. And it only happens when we draw close to him. The closer we come to the light, the more we see the stain on our shirt. The further we are from him, the more we think we're okay. It's the old restaurant trick. Don't bother vacuuming, turn the lights down. <laughs> if you can't see it, it's almost like it's not there. Live in denial. It's tough for schools to develop people of humility. Paul tells us that. He tells us that knowledge puffs up. 
And I've seen students, I've taught students, who when they learn a few things, think they're really hot stuff. There's also the arrogance of youth. They come thinking they know everything. They leave confident that they know much more. Knowledge is a temptation to, to puff us up, to make us arrogant. I was that way. Were you? I remember my first day on campus. I say this to my shame. <laughs> it was freshman class. We were herded off, told to sit in the cafeteria while they were getting ready in the chapel. They, I think they were doing construction, so feel, feel confident. It was still going on back then. We had to wait till they had stuff cleared up until we could come in. We're gathering around with strangers who would be friends, trying to make conversation, and as we were there, I, I, talking amongst ourselves on this little table I was sitting at, and people began to talk about how much they knew about the Bible, because we're all there as Bible school students. I remember stating confidently, I don't think there's a theological issue that I don't feel confident I've got the answer. First day! First day! One of the jobs of a seminary is not only to inform our minds, but to change our character, to make arrogant people humble. How do we do that? I think we do it with curriculum. I think we do it with how we organize their studies. But I think it's character. I think it's life on life. I remember one day taking intro to Old Testament with Don Leggett. That was a man. It was 8 a.m. Nobody wanted to be there. I don't know if he wanted to be there. We didn't want to be there. I had to get up at whatever time to ride my bike to be there. This is awful, an 8 a.m. class. And he had a habit, as you recall, if you had Dr. Leggett, he wanted to begin every class singing a hymn. Okay, we were, we'd introduced drums, you know. We'd, we'd found this new instrument. We wanted it to be hip, contemporary. But he wanted hymns, and so we began this day, and he wanted us to sing, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Oh, that's a, that's a barn burner at 8 a.m. <laughs> a mighty, oh my goodness, and we're just trying to get through this hymn, and he came alive. Gentlemen, do you know what you're singing? Sit down. And we sat down, and he said, let me explain to you what was written here. Look what Luther penned, and he went through and he exegeted every verse of a mighty fortress of our God. And we were astonished. I was astonished. That wasn't in his notes. That was written on his heart. That was his heart. When he finished that day, he never even got to his lecture. It was a mighty fortress is our God. But I walked out of that classroom saying, I want to be Don Leggett. I want his humility, I want his passion. He was a scholar, but he didn't brag about his scholarship, he bragged about his Lord. He looked like Jesus and I wanted to look like him. Jesus says, if you want to be my disciple, you have to be people of humility, to know in your soul that you come to God with nothing but need. Anything you have is but grace. Friends, the world has had enough of arrogant Christians. We need humble servants. And that's why Jesus said one of our main tasks is to form character. 
people of humility. But then Jesus moves on in the Sermon on the Mount, and he says, I want uh, people of humility to be sure, but I also want people of influence. Influence. Look at what he says. He turns to these people and he says, you, you are the salt of the earth. You're the salt of the earth. Now, what in the world does he mean, salt of the earth? Well, check commentators and they'll come up with a number of different possibilities. Some will say, well, we have salt shakers on our table. We put it there for flavor. We're to spice up our world. Okay, maybe. Well, not too convinced with that. Um, some will point out that in the first century, salt was valuable. If it was so valuable, it was treated like currency. So the Romans would actually pay their soldiers in salt. That carries over. Even today, we say if someone's not pulling their weight, they're not doing their job, we say they're not worth their salt. Um, well, maybe he's saying that, but I, I don't think so. The disciples he was talking to here, many of them came from a single profession. Remember what that was? Fishermen. Years ago, my um, brother-in-law, who was here with me today, he, uh, they were missionaries for 26 years in Papua New Guinea. We went to visit them on uh, Papua New Guinea one time, and we went to the town of Medang. Next time you're in the neighborhood, feel free to stop by Medang. It's an amazing little place. And there are these cottages right out on the ocean. You sit down in stilts. In the morning, as everyone slept in, I got up early, got coffee, and I sat out on the back porch right over the water. And it was perfectly still, and the mist was over the water. And I'm there with my Bible, and I'm reading, having my devotions, and, and I thought I heard something. And, and here, suddenly, as the mist began to clear, I saw fishermen standing on dugout canoes, fishing, dropping their nets. I thought, this is New Testament. This is just what they would have done. They caught those fish, and a little bit later, when everyone else got up, and we got all the troops fed and watered, and we wandered down to the market, those fishermen had come in, and guess what they were selling on the beach? Fish. But guess what they had to do to make sure that, because, you know, in Medang, they didn't have a lot of refrigeration. They didn't have freezers or fridges. So guess how they made sure that their catch didn't spoil? Guess what they used? Salt, it's preservative. Fishermen use salt to preserve the fish. That's what he's telling to his disciples. He says, you're going to be people of influence. I want you to be salt. You are to preserve your world. Preserve it. Because naturally, it'll go bad. Meat will always go bad left out in the sun, right? It's not the fault of the meat for going bad. It's the fault of the salt. The salt needs to get in there. It needs to rub into the meat to make sure that it does not go bad. It does not go rotten. We live in a world, have you looked at the newspaper and said to yourself, the world is going rotten? Have you? I think so. I think almost every day we say that, do we not? We see what the world should be. We see what it is. We see that it is not morally where it ought to be. We say the world is going rotten. Somebody should do something about that. And guess what Jesus says? You do something about it. You, my friends, are the salt of the earth. But we're just fishermen. 
We're not influential people. We're just average people. It wasn't just the apostles listening to this Sermon on the Mount. There, were, there was a crowd of people who were there, ordinary people who just came. To, and he said, you are to save the world. You are to transform this society to save it. You're people of influence. You are to have social transformation of your society. You are to accomplish that. You know how we do that? By being agents of righteousness wherever God calls us to be. That's why I was thrilled to hear that we now have Tyndale College and University where we're training people as Christians to be able to go into every aspect of society, to be able to be agents of righteousness in all different kinds of professions, not just pastoral ministry, as important as that is, but in every profession, because that's what it means to be salt and light. So ask yourself, next time you're reading the news on your iPad, say to yourself, when you're mad at the legal profession, it's going downhill, then we need to raise up Christian lawyers. We need to raise up people of righteousness and put them in those fields and reclaim them for the kingdom. And when you say the movies are lousy, we need to do something about Hollywood, good, come on down and help. We need more Christians in Hollywood. We need people who are redeeming the media. So come, we need Christians to get in there. There, here, everywhere. Wherever you see that Satan seems to be winning, we need to send Christians in. It needs salt, people. It needs salt. And guess who the salt is? They're our students. We need people of character to send them into the world in order to transform our society, to save our society morally. That's what we need. We need people like William Howland, who was mayor of Toronto when it was called Toronto the Good, who was influential in TBC, who helped start the Toronto General Hospital, who as a Christian was a moral force in this country. When we look at the country and we say, this is not where we want it to be, then friends, we need to train and equip people and send them out and to tell people that what they do in the world is salt. And it's what Christ is asking them to do and be. We have made a mistake to think that the ministry of the gospel is only done within the walls of the church. It's not, it's done in the world. You know what the church is? The church is like a, the church is like a, a garage for the TTC. Every night, all the buses, streetcars, subway trains, they all find their way into some kind of a garage, right? And when they're there, they have mechanics who come and they fix them and they restore them and make sure they're ready for service. And there's all kinds of work going on, but that's not the real work. The work of the TTC comes in the morning. When those things go out to the four corners of the Metro Toronto area and help people and, and touch those people's lives, that's where the real work is done and that's what the church is. We are a garage, people. We equip people here to go out and transform the world for Christ. We make salt and we want people to be salty. We want our students to be salty. But it's not just a moral transformation. We want a spiritual transformation because look at what he says. Jesus says here, you're not only salt of the earth, you are also what? You are the light of the world. I think that's a direct allusion to the prophet Isaiah who said in Isaiah chapter 9, 
There'll be no, no more gloom for those who were in distress. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. What is that light? What is the hope? For to us, come on, you've read it every Christmas, you know this. For to us, say, child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And why can we say that? Because the prophet will go on in chapter 52 and 53, see my servant, he will be raised, lifted up, and highly exalted. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. And the punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have what? All gone astray. Everyone has gone astray. The world has gone astray. The world is struggling in darkness. The philosopher was right. We have a God-shaped vacuum inside every one of us, and we're reaching, we're searching, we're stumbling, looking for something. The world is. It's looking for light, and there is light. And that light is the person of Jesus Christ. We have, we have all, like sheep, gone astray. Each has turned his own way. But the Lord laid on him, Jesus Christ, the iniquity of us all. Ah, uh, we produce people of influence, people who transform this world socially, but also spiritually. When we go forward, we proclaim Christ. When we go out into the world, we gossip the gospel everywhere we go. That's what we're called to do. There is light for the lost, but the light comes from us as we tell people about him. I know that's not popular anymore. In a pluralistic, PC-dominated world, everything's got to be politically correct. No one can be offended. I'm sorry, Jesus does not play well with other gods. He has the audacity to say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. There is no other name under heaven by which we may be saved but his. We are the light. We are the hope. It's not enough just to be a moral influence. We have to be a spiritual influence. You can't be that without opening your mouth. And we need to have graduates who have the character of humility. Not arrogance, but humility to bring Christ into every area of society and to have the boldness where appropriate to explain why Jesus is the only way for salvation. The only way. A hundred years ago, when the crust of the earth was cooling, and I was a student on campus. <laughs> My father was head of engineering services at Sunnybrook Medical Center. And he pulled some strings and I got a job during the year to help pay my tuition and buy books. That was my, that was my addiction, books. Some would say still is. And I worked at Sunnybrook cleaning the, the wards. They 
call me in on Saturday and Sunday, and they'd give me a bucket and a pail and a mop, and I'd go and I'd... Sometimes I'd do a C block. Sometimes they'd tell me to go D block, do a floor there. Once in a while, they'd ask me to go to um, intensive care, and I could handle all those floors. What I couldn't handle was to go to the stroke unit. That just tore me up. Went to the stroke unit, you see these men and women strapped to their chairs. They looked like full, competent professionals. You could tell they had owned their field. They were, they'd been fully competent people, the kind you'd lay your finances in front and say, help me, your legal problems, solve it. But something had happened and their memories were gone. It was terrible to watch. It's terrible to watch schools that are in the same situation, that have forgotten the roots, forgotten why they were, God brought them into being. Tyndale has not forgotten. And with God's grace and with your help and with Christ's guidance, Tyndale will not forget. God has called Tyndale to develop disciples. Amen? And those disciples are people of spiritual humility who have the confidence to go forward and transform this world and this country morally and spiritually. That's what he's called us to develop. That's the heritage of Tyndale. Look around at all the alum, all the people who have lived that calling, who are living that calling, and let's pray that God will provide what is necessary for the next 120 years. Because I'm excited about what this school can do for this country and how it can make a difference, not only in this country, but around the world. Amen? If you're here today, figure out how you can help make that happen. It's easy to sit back and say, yeah, that's what the leadership should do. That's what they should do. What can you do? How can you give? How can you support? How can you mentor? How can you open churches to take students in to help form them life on life? What can you do to be active partners? Don't just point the finger. Come along and help. Because Christ has called us all to develop disciples. Let's do it together, shall we? Father, thank you. Thank you for calling us to a significant task, a task worth giving our life for. Thank you that you've called all of us, ordinary people, to, to be people of character and people of influence. And Lord, may we multiply this by helping Tyndale to continue to fulfill its calling this year and for the next 120. For we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.